Good day, and welcome to Free to be Faithful. I'm moderator Kip Allen. Free to be Faithful is a religious liberty education and awareness program created by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in response to increasing governmental incursions into religious life. People of faith and our institutions have come under increasing attack in recent years from secular sources. The year 2020 presents a number of decisions that will impact the state of religious liberty in the United States for years to come. The Supreme Court may consider a series of cases ranging from abortion to vouchers for religious schools, the right of religious organizations to choose their own leaders, freedom of conscience, just to name a few. 2020 is also a national election year. The offices of president and vice president, as well as the entire House of Representatives and one-third of the Senate, are up for election. There are also numerous state and local decisions to be made. Learning about these issues and candidates is the duty of Christian citizenship. Focus on the family vice president, Tim Gigline, a longtime Washington observer, joins me today on Free to be Faithful. Tim, you know, back in the 60s, there was a protest song written by a fellow by the name of Phil Oaks called The Days of Decision. And I can't think of a better title for what we are facing as Christians in the year 2020. These are the days of decision for us. And there are many, many items that we're going to have to decide and will be decided for us, both in the election campaigns, both in the courts and in our hearts. Uh, Absolutely right. And, you know, in the world of public policy, just around the corner, less than a a month away, uh, is the uh, Iowa caucus, which is the first in the nation bellwether caucus, uh, where caucus goers uh, begin to winnow a very large field of uh, potential presidential candidates. So uh, that is definitively uh, on everybody's radar scope. Uh, and then just after that, uh, in the so-called Granite State of New Hampshire, uh, is the first in the uh, nation presidential primary. So these are both within uh, five weeks. It's going to be a remarkable uh, period of time uh, as we begin to see who will be the likely uh, person uh, to run against uh, President Trump. Uh, and of course, this is far beyond politics, because whoever becomes president of the United States uh, begins to appoint, nominate, and confirm variously uh, over 10,000 people. So when someone casts a ballot for a president, uh, you know, he or she is also at the same time casting a ballot for the future of the Supreme Court, the future of the federal courts, the future of the uh, much of the military, um, uh, you know, uh, organization and personnel. I mean, it's really uh, one of the most consequential uh, presidential elections of all time. And we are now, uh, you know, in the bottom of the ninth inning, uh, racing toward uh, November when this will all be sorted out. Well, Tim, President Trump has been in office now for nearly four years. He has a record. We know where he stands on issues that are important to us. We don't know yet who the Democratic nominee is going to be, but they have all spoken on some of the issues. And I think it's very important for our voters to go to each of the websites for these these potential candidates and find out where they stand on the issues that are of importance to us. Religious liberty, right to life. There's a whole series of things that, that are up for us. You know, preservation of the family as we know it. Yes, may I say... Um, the uh, in the in the same way <clears throat> that in other uh, periods of American history, uh, political parties have become absolutist on particular issues. 
Uh, the Democratic Party of uh, 2020, uh, the Democratic Party of the 21st century, is the abortion absolutist party. Uh, this is the party uh, that uh, protects Planned Parenthood's, uh, you know, over $500 million annual taxpayer uh, bonanza. Uh, they are the party that have a litmus test for who becomes president, vice president, uh, various members of a cabinet uh, who are nominated to federal court positions, district, appellate, and the Supreme Court. So it's really absolutely true, Kip. Uh, that when we go as Christians uh, to the ballot box, we are making many, many decisions when we cast, you know, one vote for the president. And if you vote for Donald Trump or you vote uh, for another uh, presidential candidate, regardless of party, uh, in one vote, we all make a, a host of decisions. And you are right for the issue of human life, for the issue of religious liberty, for the issue of who will sit on our nation's highest courts, uh, what will be the direction of our military policy, what are the federal budget funding priorities, uh, what, is the, uh, what are the main issues uh, in uh, conscience, religious liberty, uh, private education. Uh, these host of issues get sorted out uh, in a binary system in the United States, uh, largely between our two political parties versus a parliamentary democracy. And just in the next uh, few weeks, we are going to see some very important, and I might even say major, uh, Supreme Court cases which are uh, coming onto the docket of the court. Uh, and these will have very direct uh, uh, impacts on uh, real people living in real states uh, who care very deeply about their children's future and about the future of the country, uh, and I just cannot overstate uh, how, how strongly uh, it is when, when, when the Supreme Court chooses to hear certain cases and not to hear other cases. Well, let's examine that a little bit more closely, also bearing in mind that the current president has appointed two, two uh, new members to the uh, Supreme Court, and uh, who knows what's going to happen in the next four years. Some of the, uh, the court members are quite old. And anything can happen. Uh, yeah, I, I might mention very quickly, Kip, just because I think it might be of interest to the listeners, that in, uh, in just over three years, President Trump has appointed, uh, nominated, confirmed to the Supreme Court or to the federal courts about one of every four federal judges. Uh, that is a record in the history of the United States presidency. In real numbers, the president has nominated and confirmed 184 federal judges. As you say, that includes two Supreme Court justices, and we have two Supreme Court justices on the current court, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, and Justice Breyer. Both of them are over, well over the age of 80. So we'll see what happens on that. And I think it is safe to say uh, that President Trump is making an enormous impact on the judiciary. This is something that I think is often overlooked. As you pointed out, a lot of the cases, a lot of the case law, a lot of the things that apply to us as Christians are winding up in court. And in fact, we're about to discuss the Supreme Court right now, some of those. And that's something to bear in mind. Uh, one very important case that's coming up right now is the case of Espinoza versus Montana. Now, what's going on there, as I understand it, is that the state of uh, Montana says that uh, school tax credits cannot be used for religious private schools. But 
Does this fly in the face of the Trinity Lutheran case here in Missouri, where the Supreme Court said, you know, in a case like this, the state has to be neutral, not hostile to religion? Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad you bring up the Espinoza case, uh, because this is going to be argued uh, January 22nd. And you are right, Kip, at issue is a scholarship program which was passed by the Montana legislature in 2015. And uh, this law encourages private giving to private educational scholarship programs, and it does so by incentivizing such donations with a $150 uh, tax credit. Now, the key to this is that, as I understand it, parents can apply for such scholarships for use in sending their children to private schools, including religious ones. But state bureaucrats are frustrated uh, that the legislature's purposes uh, were by excluding religious schools from the program. And they are essentially saying that the Montana Constitution requires that. So the state agency's decision has been challenged in state court and it's been overturned to the very great relief of parents and students, and I might say many of whom are poor and depend on scholarships to enable them to make educational decisions that are best for their family. Here's the keynote, however. Uh, the state's Supreme Court later reversed that lower court decision. It threw out the entire law in the process, and that decision was appealed, and uh, the United States Supreme Court has accepted the case. So as you say, there's a lot on the line here about whether, uh, you know, uh, taxpayer dollars, which are going to go to a host of private schools, should be barred or banned uh, from being used in, uh, in, in private Christian schools. This is a major issue in Montana, but of course the result of this case has a major ramification across the country. Absolutely. And I think one of the most important decisions that the court is going to be making uh, is coming up uh, on the Louisiana law that requires abortionists to have admitting privileges in hospitals. Now, this really goes beyond what one might think. I was reading a, uh, a report today where there was a new amicus brief that was filed that said that uh, Roe v. Wade is now actually obsolete because it determined in 1973 what determined what, what uh, was viability. And that is now completely out the window with modern science. You know, I'm very intrigued uh, by this case. In fact, more than I can say. And for those who are tracking it, it's called June Medical Services versus Gee. And this, as you say, will be argued on March 4th. This is really uh, a very important pro-life case. It's one to watch because the Supreme Court has announced it will hear this appeal, which involves a Louisiana statute that requires abortionists to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. And most people would say that's only logical, that's only rational. If you're doing an abortion, uh, if you're performing an abortion, and there is a major problem for, uh, you know, for anybody in this situation, uh, that you ought to be uh, having uh, you know, immediate access to a nearby hospital uh, for the obvious reasons. And this law is designed to, of course, protect women's health by ensuring a continuity of care 
you know, should there be complications arising during or after the abortion procedure that requires hospitalization. Uh, The bottom line, as you say, is that the law's challengers rely on the 2016 Supreme Court decision uh, in, in what's called the Hellerstadt case. That was a five to three decision, and it struck down a very similar law in Texas. In fact, Kip, the entire argument from the Louisiana abortion industry uh, in their petition to the Supreme Court can be summarized like this, that the Louisiana law, that the Louisiana law is the same as Texas's and therefore must be struck down. So the history of this case in the lower courts illustrates, and this is the important point, it illustrates the complexity of the issues as well as a diversity of judicial opinion concerning how to resolve it. It's not uh, you know, just as simple as, oh, that's like another case. And the important thing is that, and I think everybody in the pro-life community recognizes this, that, that those uh, uh, who are in an abortion uh, situation in a clinic And if there is a medical emergency before, during, or after uh, the procedure, there ought to be access to to a hospital nearby. So this is a major pro-life case, and depending on how it goes, for those of us who are pro-life, it could potentially open the door uh, for the repeal or the partial repeal or the beginning of the repeal of Roe against Wade. It will be an intriguing case. Uh, Another one that I've been following that I think has enormous uh, implications for those of us in the religious area is they're going to be hearing the case of Baronelle Stutzman once again with Arlene's Flowers. Now, our listeners may recall, she's the one who was, uh, was asked to make a special floral arrangement for a gay marriage. She refused, saying that her faith does not allow her to do that. Although she'd sell the flowers, she would not make a specialized arrangement. I mean, the state of Washington uh, then filed a lawsuit saying, gee, you know, you're, this is bad. You're, you're discriminating here. And uh, she is being sued personally as well as the business, and she stands to lose everything on this. The Supreme Court heard this case once before. And they threw it back to the Washington State Supreme Court, remanded it to them, saying, reconsider this in light of our decision on Masterpiece Cake Shop, which said that you cannot be hostile to religion. You must be neutral to it. And apparently the Washington Supreme Court threw it right back again with almost no changes. In fact, I think they used almost exactly the same wording and again penalized Baronald Stutzman. So... It may finally be that the Supreme Court, which has been dancing around this issue, will finally have to come up with a, a definitive, broad ruling on what constitutes religious freedom and freedom of conscience in terms of business. You know, I'm so glad, Kip, that you have been so intrepid uh, about following this case. Uh, because my view as a longtime court watcher who is very interested uh, in, uh, in not just the decision-making process, but also how individual justices, all nine justices, uh, reason uh, in either their majority, their minority, their dissent, their agreement, their sidebar, etc. What intrigues me about the court, and I am so eager to emphasize this as we discuss Baron L. Stutzman, what intrigues me about the Stutzman case is, is uh, it, like a lot of other cases at the Supreme Court, is just uh, not just what court, court cases uh, the Supremes decide to hear, but what, which ones they decide not to hear. 
you know, this is extremely important because everybody says, well, the court has accepted uh, these number of cases and let's track closely how they're going to decide. But very often the Supreme Court uh, decides not to take critically important cases. And when they decide not to take a case, what they're really often doing is deciding not to decide big issues. And the biggest issue that the court is yet to really determine is this question about religious liberty and rights of conscience. You mentioned Jack Phillips a moment ago. This was the, uh, is the cake baker uh, in Colorado. You know, the court uh, and the Colorado courts, you know, have wrangled with the Jack Phillips case for what seems like a hundred years, <laughs> uh, quite less than that, but it has gone on and on. And it's absolutely true that Jack Phillips, on a technicality, uh, you know, uh, won. That's all great news. But uh, it was only on a technicality uh, because it was found at the local Colorado level uh, that he had been discriminated against as a Christian. But the court in that case did not make a larger, potentially uh, precedent-setting decision about the protection of religious liberty and the rights of conscience. And as you say, the Baronel Stutzman florist case from Washington State is very much, uh, you know, in that family of cases. Her case, like Jack Phillips, has gone on and on. But until the Supreme Court decides to take that case and to distinguish religious liberty from freedom of expression, it will continue to be a very difficult area of like-minded religious liberty cases. So I think uh, as praying people, we have to pray that the Supreme Court not only decide to take the Baronel Stutzman case, but that it decides to protect her religious liberty and rights of conscience. And I may say that as Lutheran Christians, there is not a single more important religious liberty issue in America today uh, than the Baronel Stutzman case. It really is that important. If the Supreme Court does decide to hear the Baronel Stutzman case, which is probably rule uh, sometime this month on that, it would telegraph that they really want to make want to put this uh, this issue to bed. They've had a number of issues come up, and they've kicked them back down to lower courts with very very uh, narrow rulings. But if they accept this one. It seems to me that they're telegraphing, okay, we've got to make a major decision here because they're going to be reviewing their own rulings. I totally agree with you. And I want to make even a bigger distinction, uh, if I may, or capitalize on what you've said. Um, In the month of January, every single year, the Supreme Court makes final decisions about the cases it will hear up to and including May. In other words, if the court decides not to hear the Baronel Stutzman case, we will know very soon. And if they don't, uh, this is a very ominous sign from the Supreme Court. Right. Because they have had, if you use a, a very broad indicator, they have had three or four uh, different opportunities to accept this case. Uh, And as you said earlier, they remanded, which is a fancy word for sending back to. They sent back this case to Washington State. So this is a major religious liberty case with Jack Phillips, the uh, masterpiece uh, cake baking shop case from Colorado. The Baronel Stutzman floral case from Washington State is just that big. It's in that same category. And so all people of faith 
should be watching very closely to see if the Supreme Court takes this case. Because if they do, it's a wonderful, excellent benchmark case that will help us better determine how the John Roberts case will navigate this series of protection of the rights of conscience cases going forward. I'm prayerful and I'm hopeful that they will finally say uh, that it's time to render justice for Baron L. Stutzman. Uh, one case of religious liberty that they have already heard the arguments to and are expected by the end of June maybe to announce the decision is the case of the Harris Funeral Homes. This is the case where one of the employees at Harris said, suddenly decided that he's a she and wanted to present as such when greeting the uh, the bereaved families of the deceased who are being treated by the funeral home. And uh, Terrace has said, no, you can't do that. And that case has gone all the way up to the Supreme Court now. And, you know, there's been a huge series of, uh, a large series of, of arguments and debates and cases lately on this very issue. People de- determining what their gender actually is and what rights they have under that. This guy is claiming that, well, I'm a woman now and you have to treat me as such. Yeah, I'm very concerned about this case, and and you and I, uh, in 2019, had a very robust uh, series of conversations about the Harris case. The thing that concerns me, Kip, in the Harris case is that it is twinned with two other cases, and I'll not go into the details of those two cases uh, today. But when the Supreme Court, and it does this quite frequently, when the Supreme Court accepts a case, it's not honor-bound to just decide a single case. If it is within a family of related other cases, it will often group them together, uh, hear uh, the cases individually, and then essentially decide among those cases you know, how best to find uh, the medium or the standard for all related cases going forward. And as I expressed at the time of our discussion on Harris, This particular case concerns me for a variety of reasons, the biggest one of which is that I wish that it would have been accepted individually on its uh, face, because on its face, it's a very, very strong case for religious liberty. But when it is twinned with the other two cases that I'm referring to, it's not as strong of a case, because in my view, the other two cases are kind of, not specifically, but kind of unrelated to the underlying uh, case that you've mentioned a moment ago. So I think that uh, those of us who are rightfully preoccupied by religious liberty, in my view, Kip, should be quite concerned about how the court will decide the so-called Harris case before the end of June. Well, also, we I think we have to re- remember and ex- explain a little bit further is that this ruling will actually define essentially what is Title VII, where, the, where it says that uh, you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. However, Lower courts have since expanded that rule. You know, Title VII was passed back in 1964, I believe. Now, one of the cases, I believe, that's twinned with this uh, is the thing about women's athletics, where we're hearing more and more men who say that they're women are uh, competing in women's sports and, frankly, just dominating them. Yeah, these are two very important narratives regarding uh, the underlying issue, and I'd like to just disaggregate them very quickly. Uh, Title VII is a significant civil rights uh, portion of of a long-term existing bill. And uh, in the 60s, when Title VII was passed, 
uh, the definition of sex was always a biological definition, male or female. What is happening in the underlying case that you're talking about is an attempt to change the definition of sex to be not biological, but to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, gender orientation, you know, uh, and this is a gigantic difference in federal law. You know, uh, uh, my view strongly held, and I'm sure yours, um, is that the legislative branch should change legislation. It should not be the federal courts, uh, you know, stepping in uh, to be legislators. So you're right. That that is a major portion of the Harris case, and it's one that concerns me very deeply because courts over time, uh, very and too often, have tragically wanted to be legislators in black robes. So there's a lot riding on this case. And and as you talk about uh, women's uh, sports and athletics at the at the local level, there again, it should not be Washington's job to rule for all 50 states. It should be up uh, to, uh, you know, to, to the standard of what the law actually says, uh, because it should not be men competing in women's sports, nor should it be women competing uh, in men's sports. This is a very big issue, um, and, uh, and we are only at the beginning of what is turning out to be a very significant national debate. When people talk about an activist court as opposed to an originalist court, this case, I think, would actually spell that out. The originalist court would say, this is what the law meant when it was written. Where an activist court would say, yes, but times have changed, therefore we think the definition should change. Without, as you pointed out, the legislature actually making that change. I totally agree. And may I say, for the reason that you just mentioned, Kip, this is a defining case not just for this body of law, but it's a defining case uh, for the Roberts Court. Uh, We will learn uh, whether this court feels that it has a majority of members who are willing to step in and to do the job of Congress, or whether they will stand down and say, it is not our job to legislate. You are absolutely right, and in one sense, the decision in Harris is just as big as the question of the constitutional separation of powers. Well, as I said at the beginning of the program, these are the days of decision, and we have some very serious decisions to make as we approach this year. And once again, Tim, I would like to urge our listeners to go to your candidates, find out where they stand on these specific issues, how they how they will relate to you, and then cast your vote accordingly. Don't just do it because of party or person, but what do they say? What do they stand for? That's what's important, I think. I couldn't agree more that the first duty, the first duty uh, of uh, Christian citizenship is to vote. Uh, there is a lot riding on this, and in the next uh, few months, a very concentrated period of time, uh, we will be having the Iowa caucuses, the New Hampshire primary, the South Carolina primary, and the Nevada primary. All of this, all of these, just ahead of Super Tuesday, a day with lots of primaries in March. So I think it's fair to say, Kip, that between now and the end of March, this three-year, this three-month period of the brand new year is consequential for all the issues that we have discussed. I agree completely. We'll see what happens, Tim. Thanks for being on the program and explaining these issues. They are vitally important, and we as citizens and as Christians need to understand them. Thank you so much. Be of good cheer and every blessing.
You've been listening to Free to Be Faithful, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for listening and supporting Free to Be Faithful on Worldwide KFUO.